Thank you, Tricia and Jim, for that um, wonderfully reflective prayer from the Psalms. Friends, please join with me in a word of prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for the ways that you do create in us a clean heart, that you help us to reset and to restart, and that our time of worship is a time that we come before you, God, and we bring ourselves, but we also know that you meet us, that you refresh us, and that you renew us. Be with us in this time of reflecting on your word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts bring you glory. Amen. We've looked at a lot of parables recently, and many people love the parables of Jesus. I think that part of the attraction, part of it is the way that this approach to teaching, it necessarily involves our mind. Jesus is acting in these parables as a teacher, and he uses imagery that we can see and sometimes even relate to in order to grasp the complex ideas, sometimes actually even very simple ideas. I also think that Jesus uses emotion, emotions that we can understand and relate to. And as we connect then with the text, we connect with the story, we connect also with our whole selves, things we can connect to and relate to. I've mentioned this before, but in our midday prayer exercises, sometimes we use a prayer method called imaginative prayer, where we place ourselves within the text. Sometimes we're an observer watching the story unfold before us, like one of those extra characters on a movie set. Other times we might be one of the key players interacting with Jesus, talking with Jesus, hearing the words of Jesus. And still other times we might just be ourselves, imagining ourselves stepping into the scene to try and understand what was happening. What were the sights? the smells, the sounds, and how do all of these things help us to better know Jesus? It frees us up to bring our questions into the scene, to ask God the questions. As much as our reading of scripture is hopefully continually showing us more about God, it also reveals more of Christ to us. But I'm amazed at how often Scripture points out human characteristics and elements of the human condition that are as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. I also like to wonder if the reactions of the earliest hearers of Scripture might even be similar to our own reactions, especially the parables, especially this parable. This parable that Rogers read for us this morning, it has got to be one of the most unnerving parables for people to hear. And I wonder if it was as uncomfortable for people to hear then as it is now. But as unnerving as it is, it also absolutely reveals some parts of our human nature that seem to have been a part of the human story for a very long time. In fact, as we'll hear in a minute, maybe even more than the human story. You see, competition and comparisons of oneself to others, they seem almost unavoidable. In some ways, it 
it all comes down to worth and how we value ourselves. We compare our homes, our jobs, the success of our children. We sometimes compare ourselves in the quiet privacy of our homes, but other times behind the backs of others in catty conversations. And this starts at a young age. Kids pick up on it quickly, especially when they learn the art of comparison from their parents. And in some ways, these comparisons, they're really also a thirst for fairness in some way, a desire for fairness. We want to pull back the curtain to make sure that different people are being treated the same. And when we see that they aren't, our reaction is dependent perhaps on where we are in the equality equation. Since March, one of my favorite regular activities has been our story times. And first we were doing it two nights a week. And then through the summer, we moved it to one night a week. And we finished it actually last week. And, um, you know, over the course of these months of reading children's books, it's something kind of new to me. I've read and I've heard a lot of children's books. And I'm amazed at how great the stories are. And there's a book that I discovered earlier this week, a little late uh, for our story time, and we never got a chance to read it, but it's all about fairness. And the book is titled, It's Not Fair. And on every page of this book, on nearly every page of this book, that title is exclaimed in response to a variety of apparent inequalities. One child asks, why can't I have a pet giraffe? It's not fair. Or why now, chicken pox? It's not fair. I'll share a link to a video of the book being read by some kids in the comments. It'll be in the comments section and also in the Weekly Connection this week. And it's a fun one. It's a good book. It, it touches a nerve, like most children's books, it touches a nerve with all of us because we can relate. We ask this question. We make this cry. It's not fair. And teaching fairness, teaching people to seek out fairness, teaching children to look for the areas where fairness is needed and acknowledging the emotions we experience when we see a lack of fairness, by all means, it's important. And this parable is so strange in part because of the way that Jesus taps into these anxious feelings of fairness and comparison and value and worth and salary and specifically the knowledge of someone of what someone else earns. These are, are kind of core issues that people can relate to. When I was practicing law, I knew of several employers with policies that prohibited the sharing of salaries among workers. I wonder if you've ever heard of these or if you've been in a position where you wanted your employees to not share their salaries. These are called pay secrecy policies. And the idea was that employers didn't want their employees talking with one another about income. Now, why? For the exact reason displayed in this morning's parables, conflicts about worth and conflicts related to motivation of the labor force. The interesting thing about these policies, whether they're written or not, is that in many cases, and I'm not meaning to give legal advice here, but in many cases, they're illegal. For more than 80 years, there have been federal restrictions that make it illegal for employers to restrict the sharing of wages among employees. 
And over the past several decades, there have been new laws at the state and federal level repeating the same rule, which I find interesting, right? Because first of all, there's already a law that says it, and then that gets repeated and, and that the government has specifically said that people can share their wages with one another. I find that interesting that the, that the government chose to speak. And then the second piece that's interesting to me about that is that employers still tend to want to enforce these policies, whether it's official or not. But then there's this third less obvious thing that stands out to me. What about the workers? It seems as though workers in many settings are as content to not share their salaries as they are to not know what their fellow workers are making. It seems to be an ignorance is bliss type of situation. And there could be so many reasons for this, reasons individual to each person. But there's also something pretty universal to this concept of comparison and how it can make us feel. And I say universal because it's possibly even beyond our humanity. I watched a TED Talk video this week by a primatologist named Franz DeWall. He studies primates. That's what a primatologist does. I like the word though. And, and he, he studies primates and their social behavior. And this TED Talk was entitled Moral Behavior in Animals, in case you want to look it up. DeWall is looking at how animals behave, and from animal behavior, he seems to discover things about us, about humans as well. And one of their most famous studies dealt with fairness. Here's what the study consisted of. They put two capuchin monkeys side by side. And he reminds the audience that this particular type of monkeys, they live in a group and they know each other. And these two monkeys knew one another. And here's what he says. He says, there's a very simple task that they need to do. And if you give both of them a cucumber in exchange for the task, the two monkeys side by side, they're perfectly willing to do this task 25 times in a row. Now, if you give the partner monkey grapes, which is a far better food to these monkeys, then you create inequality between them. So that's the experiment we did. So in this experiment, they have one monkey on the left side and it hands the researcher a rock. And to the monkey on the left, the researcher gives a piece of cucumber in exchange for the rock. And the monkey eats the cucumber. The monkey on the right does the same task, hands a rock and the researcher gives the monkey a grape. Dewal has this to say, the one who gets cucumber, the first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine, the first piece she eats. Then she sees the other one getting a grape. So she gives a rock to us, that's the task. And we give her a piece of cucumber and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us and that's what she does and she gets a grape and eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now and gets again a cucumber. And then the cucumber receiving monkey, it throws the cucumber back at the researcher and it pounds on the, on the plexiglass repeatedly. And the monkey stops performing the task once it knows that the reward isn't fair. So you see, 
there's this not just human, but fundamental desire. And, and they repeated this test, by the way, with other animals, not just with these capuchin monkeys. There's this fundamental desire to be treated fairly. And so it is no wonder that this parable is particularly troubling for us. You know, when we hear it, we may initially relate to that first hired worker, the one who was the early bird, ready to work, ready to earn the fair daily wage. And I wonder if when you were listening to the text, you even found yourself relating to that early bird at the end of the story, when they're watching everyone else get paid and thinking, oh, maybe he'll get a little more than he expected. Maybe he'll get a proportionally increased wage. But quickly, for those early workers, the story goes south. Rather than receiving proportionally more, they receive exactly what they were promised, exactly what the workers who worked for just one hour received. But their cucumber wasn't fair when compared to what someone else received for their work. Theologian John Shea writes that this reaction comes from a recording that's constantly running in our minds, a recording that goes something like this. If someone is getting what I am getting, but hasn't put in as much work as I have, I'm being cheated. Is there any other way to see this? Shea writes, most of us have this tape running continually that makes us, in the language of the parable, grumble ready. I love that phrase, grumble ready. We're ready to grumble. And it makes sense that we would be. Humans, and it would seem monkeys and other animals, are wired to view everything from our own point of view, the point of view of our well-being. If it's good for us, we're excited. But if it somehow demotes us or diminishes our work, then like the early workers, we cry out, you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the landowners questioned back after reminding, that the early, after reminding the early workers that they were paid exactly what they were promised. The questions back are hard ones to hear. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? This, of course, is a translation from the Greek. And I looked up the Greek and I was surprised by what I learned. Sometimes like this, the Greek phrases need to be interpreted, not just translated literally. Our biblical translations attempt to make sense of phrases that otherwise wouldn't convey the meaning into our contemporary language. And in this case, the Greek, if it's translated directly, it would mean, is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? Wow. I see why the translators changed that question, because our version does make more direct sense, right? Are you envious because I am generous? But this other way of asking the question, it's a powerful one, because it's like the eye changes and sees the world differently. And, the, and the, this question, how do we react? to the knowledge of God's goodness to all? How do we react to God's generosity? Because no matter how we slice and interpret this parable, and no matter how we try to look at it, it is a parable about God's generosity, a generosity that 
only God controls. It isn't really about equal distribution or even about fairness. It's about a God who extends grace to all and mercy to all. And while this is initially unsettling, for sure, and we want to toss the cucumber back when we see someone else getting the grape, this is one more example. One more example of the many examples we see in scripture where God is turning the tables on our expectations, our expectations of God, and instead showing us that God is the one who controls grace, thank God, and not us, thank God, and that God and not us brings God's generous love even to those we think might be beyond God's reach. Thank God. Over and over again, and right in this very section of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is changing expectations. He's trying to explain what it means to receive grace and what it means to be undeserving and receive grace and what it means to be welcomed by God along with all others who are welcomed by God. This is truly the good news even when it doesn't seem fair. But the real question then is how we respond to God's goodness and God's grace. Does God's grace make us bristle and turn our eye ugly at God's generosity or does God's goodness and God's grace cause us to give thanks and to learn to live in a way reflects that goodness and grace to a world that is filled with people so in need of knowing they are loved. And then when we flip this parable around and instead of placing ourselves in the comfortable spot of the shoes of the early bird, we find ourselves as one of those workers who are picked up at the end of the day who received a day's wage for the hour of work. When we find ourselves as ones who receive the generous grace of God, maybe then it is that we, then that we look to Christ, arms outstretched, giving us our daily bread. And we say, thank God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.